had a church out there whose uh, pastor left suddenly and unexpectedly. And the thing is so interesting is we went out there to serve and to uh, minister to them. And when I came home, when Darren picked me up last time, what I found is really that they ministered to me. And we sat actually, (laughs) I love my husband. He's so patient with me. (laughs) He picked me up and we uh, had some errands to run and we were sitting in the parking lot and I was talking to him and I started crying in the parking lot. And I told him that I realized that there are a lot of things that I have taken for granted in being our church. I had taken for granted that there is somebody to preach to me every Sunday. I had not known that that was like, you should really be thankful for that. (laughs) I'm thankful for my pastor. I'm thankful for the other people that get up here to minister. I've taken for granted that we have a worship team. That blesses me so much taken for granted the way that people use their ministry gifts here in this church. So, I don't want to make this all about me, but but (laughs) here's what I want to ask is if you would take just a minute. We've been worshiping God and our worship is to tell him how much we love him. It's to make these declarations like Tina said, we're making declarations But if you would, just right now, just take a minute and just be thankful. You know, everything comes at us in the world to try and distract us from being thankful and remind us of what's not happening. And it's so important to recognize what we're focusing on and what we're doing and recognize what is happening. So just right now, I mean, can we just be thankful that... Like, legit, we all have shoes, (laughs) you know? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can breathe today. Because I know for some people that's hard. Thankful for my family. And I'm thankful for my church. So thank you. So just right now, where you're at, just say thank you, God, for something. Something that's super simple, that's so easy to take for granted that I had warm water at my house this morning because when you don't have warm water you super recognize wow that's really something to be thankful for when the electricity goes off right (laughs) I'm thankful I had coffee this morning yes sister (laughs) God we thank you that you are so good and every good and perfect gift comes from you and we thank you for the big things we thank you for the little things we thank you that you are so aware of us and of god that you're a good god and that you're a good dad and you just give us the little things that make your kids smile so i thank you for that in jesus name in jesus name amen amen if you would turn around to somebody and just tell them I am thankful for, and tell them something that you're thankful for this morning. Thank you very much. I'm thankful for Wes. 
And I'm thankful that Kevin and Wes can lift this podium because it's super heavy. <laughs> I ordered it online. I didn't know it was like for real. I think it's cast iron. It's metal. This is not, when you see one of the armor bearers carry this up here and set it down with one hand, you should go, wow. <laughs> Because it's heavy. Yes, amen. Well, if I've not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Lynette, and I have the honor of being part of our pastoral team here at Cowboy Church. I get to be married to this handsome man on the front row. That's my hubby. I love you, babe. (laughs) Riata is sitting here going, oh, brother. Oh, brother. (laughs) Well, just uh, for those of you that don't know, we have been partnering with a church out in Merced, California. So we want to take this opportunity. If you guys would just let them know how thankful we are that we get to partner with them. Yeah. Kingdom Ranch Cowboy Church in Merced. If you are watching us online and you are anywhere close to Merced, we really encourage you to make the trip over there to join with that family of people. They're a great group of people. And something that I can also say is that Debbie always feeds me really well when I'm there. I love staying at Debbie's house. Yes. So uh, this morning... We are going to cover something that literally could probably be a four or six week series, but we're just going to do it in one morning. I know. So open up wide. I have confidence in you. We can do this together. Okay. All right. So um, when I was, how many of you can remember your very favorite teacher from school? I think I had a couple, but one of my favorites was a teacher named Mr. Dorsing, and he was my sixth grade teacher. And... uh, Mr. Dorsing was very unorthodox in the way that he would teach and the things that he did. We had a Dorsing dodgeball, and we would challenge other classes, and it was a no-holds-barred, beat them in the head, like however you can take them out, that's how you take them out. There was no mercy shown, and he played, and he showed no mercy. So Mr. Dorsing was amazing. I loved him. And every day at lunch, uh, he would read... Well, first of all, he would listen to uh, Paul Harvey while we ate our lunch. We ate our lunch in the classroom all together, and he would listen to Paul Harvey. How many many know who Paul Harvey is? I should have asked, how many of you don't know who Paul Harvey is? (laughs) Paul Harvey used to come on the radio. He gave, he would talk, and his, the way he would close that he would tell the rest of the story you remember and he would close and say and this is paul harvey good day well as soon as he would say good day all of us knew that it was time for the story um, mr dorsing would get out our book and he would read to us for the remainder of our lunch period and he would read to us these books called uh, choose your own adventure I don't know if you guys remember these or not or if they still i don't even know if they still publish those anymore they do great books. So what it was, was uh, you would read the story and at a particular point, it would say, you know, now they came upon a cave. So it would stop and it would say, do you choose to go in the cave or do you choose to take the dark road to the left? And you would make the choice. So all of us in the class, we would vote. All of us sitting at our desk, we would vote and whatever vote 
uh, was the most, you know, then that is the choice that we, that Mr. Dorsing would turn to. So if you chose to go in the cave, turn to page 76. If you choose to take the road to the left, turn to page 102. So, you know, then you would go there. Then you would go a certain place and then you would choose again. And so every time you went through the book, you got to choose and the book would have multiple endings and multiple ways that the story could turn out. And the thing that's interesting is that these books are a lot like our life and I see a huge parallel in them, but yet at the same time, not at all. Because our lives and where each one of us are at right now has a large part to do with the choices that we've made. And the choices that we have made have a huge impact on where we are in our lives and what we're experiencing in our day-to-day lives right now. At the same time, (laughs) that's on one hand, and on the other hand, every one of us are experiencing things in our life right now that had absolutely nothing to do with our choosing and that we had no control over whatsoever. So these books were really quite a metaphor for our walk with God and the way that our journey with him goes is that God, who is the creator of everything, he is the great author. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. Yet this God who created us and everything around us invites us into partnership with him. That he is God, he can do anything and everything, he can do what he wants, he is God, but at the same time, he invites us to move with him through the prayers and the worship and the life of his followers. He invites us to execute or to bring about his will on this earth. And some people might say, well, you don't know what God's will is, or you never know what God's going to do. Not really. (laughs) The very simplest definition that I could give and that just boils it down to the very of it is that very, very simply God's will is the way that Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is God's will? God's will is the way that his kingdom is established and what exists in the heavenly realm, that that would be established here on earth. So if it's not in existence in the heavenly realm, it's not his will that that would be in existence in the way that we are living our lives. His will is that we live our lives in the way that the kingdom of heaven is established. Amen? Amen. So you could spend a whole week on that just alone right there. See, we're breezing through it. Look at your neighbor and say, we're doing good today. All right? So he invites us into this uh, partnership with him to accomplish his will. At the same time that we get this invitation, he also gives us a very clear expectation. And if you would, if you have your Bibles or you have your phones with your Bible app on it, go over to James chapter one. And I'm gonna read to you from James one, starting in verse two out of the New King James translation. And it says this, Paul is writing to us and he says, my brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at somebody close to you and say, I am perfect. (laughs) Yes, 
that's what I tell Darren all the time. My job here on this earth is to help him develop patience so that he will be perfect. He is well on his way, y'all. Okay. (laughs) But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if we go right back up to the beginning of that, it says, count it all joy when you face various trials. Everybody say, yay. (laughs) He doesn't say count it all joy if you face trials. He says, count it joy when. What that says to us is it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So right now, every single one of us in here, you're either going through a trial, you just came through one, or you're headed into one. That's good news. We can just all leave now, right? But (laughs) here's the thing is he says, he's letting us know, I've invited you into partnership with me. I've opened this invitation to you, but I'm also letting you know with this invitation, you're going to encounter trials. Now, the fact remains that whether you are in partnership with God or not, you're going to have trials in your life. It just so happens that if you're in partnership with God, when you do go through those trials, you have someone to go through them with, but he's letting us know, count it all joy when you go through the trials. He's letting us know, don't be surprised when everything isn't smooth and easy. There's going to be times that are difficult. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be struggles. And don't be surprised by that. But a lot lot of times when we go through trials, trials cause questions to come up in our life. Trials cause the questions of, why me? Why did this happen? What did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? Did I not do something right? It causes all kinds of questions to come up on the inside of us. That's what trials do. But God also tells us that when we have these questions that we can ask him. He says to ask him for wisdom. And that word wisdom actually means the capacity to understand and so have skill for living. So when he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, ask God, if you need understanding, ask him. But when he tells us to ask him, he gives us a very specific instruction on the way for us to ask him because he says to us, he says, ask without doubting this word doubting. Isn't just a, "Mm, I don't know this word doubting. When you dig into it actually means to withdraw from. Then if you dig further into that word, what it has to it, the base of that word is um, like a legal base where it would mean actually to sue or to bring a charge against to put on trial. So what he's saying is when you ask God for wisdom, do it without withdrawing from him and putting God on trial and bringing an accusation against him. Hmm. See, our asking 
has everything to do with the posture that we come to God with. If we come to God accusing him in our trial, accusing him in our questions that are arising because of the trial, what it says to us is that if we are doubting, we will be like the wave that is tossed to and fro in the wind. Now, for the longest time when I read this, in my mind when I would read this, the picture that would come to me was being in a sea, a person in the, in the waves trying to just keep their head above the water because the waves are going about and they're splashing and you're in a storm. But actually, when you read the scripture, that's not what it's saying at all. It says that's not that you will be in the waves. It says that you will be like the waves. So you're not in the water trying to survive, but you're actually the storm. You're the one that is creating the storm and you're the one that is creating the waves that are being tossed to and fro. And that phrase right there means to agitate violently. Anybody ever been violently agitated? (laughs) You're so honest. (laughs) Yes. To be violently agitated. So then it goes on, where am I at? Doubting, and it's our posture, yeah. So how do we know if we're coming to God in a posture of accusation? When we're asking him for understanding, when we're asking God for insight, when we're going through the trials and we don't understand what's happening, how do we know if we're coming to God from the, from this position and coming at him accusingly, or if we're actually with him as a partner asking for understanding? And one of the ways that we can know if we are doing this is that the posture of requiring answers to mysteries causes us to separate and to pull back from God. When we are asking him the questions where we're putting him on trial, it says that it's withdrawing, the doubting that you're withdrawing. So when you are asking God the questions from an accusatory standpoint, what it actually does is it puts separation and distance between you and God, the very one that you're asking for answers. Another way that you can know if that's happening is that you're stuck in the emotion of the trial because we're the ones that are perpetuating the trial. See, if the emotion of the trial is just as real to you today, if the trauma, the despair, the loss, the confusion, the anger... The sorrow is as real to you today as the day that it happened. That is an indicator that you are perpetuating not the trial that you went through, but you are perpetuating the trial that you have placed God on. When we place God on trial, the emotions of the trial that we went through live through our withdrawing and separation from God. Oh, but we think that we're connecting with God because we're constantly asking the questions. Why? I don't understand. I need answers. Questioning God 
And even you could go so far as answers do not connect you to God. Faith connects you to God. Your answers that you're looking for, if God plopped all the answers into your lap right now, it would not make you any closer to him. Faith. Faith is what makes you closer to God. That is what connects you to God. The doubting, like we said, makes you like a wave of the sea. Not in the sea, but an actual wave driven by the wind. And that word right there in the Greek is very interesting because it actually has to it the base. It's it's violent agitation, but then as you dig further into it, it's actually a cooling and a waning process that takes place through evaporation. I had to look this up because I was like, I'm not really big into science. So I was like, I don't really know all about that. My grandma had an evaporative cooler in her house. So I had to look it up and see, well, what does, what does that even mean? So basically, if we break this down here, what it's saying is if our, pas- if our posture turns to placing God on trial, we become like a wave in a storm and our faith grows cold as we disintegrate into vapor. It's all in the posture that we're asking. It's all in the way that we approach God. Walking by faith means that there will be spaces that we walk through that we simply don't understand. There will be things that, again, as we said, that that we choose and that our life is a result of the choices that we make. And when we made those choices, we didn't have the understanding and the knowledge that we do now, yet we're still dealing with some of the choices and things that we made in times where we weren't quite so smart. I hope we're smarter now than we were then, right? But also there's things that we walk through that we had absolutely no control over and no choice And we're walking through those things and we don't understand. When we walk with God, it will require that we settle within ourselves, that there will be spaces and times of mystery that we walk through. And if we do not settle that within ourselves, we are not walking in faith. Faith has everything to do with what you can't see. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If we are walking in faith, there will always be things that we walk in that are not seen. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're walking by faith. We're walking in space. It's like walking in a dark room, yet you're walking with light when you're walking with God but there will always be mysteries that we don't understand. It's all in the posture that we come to God with in the midst of those mysteries. Um, in my own, in my own journey, in my own walk, how many, how many of you have ever prayed for people and uh, you know, you prayed for a healing and you prayed for a miracle and it, it, it didn't happen. 
we're all practicing, right? <laughs> I, I don't know anybody that's 100% but Jesus. <laughs> so we're all practicing. And when we have those moments, when we pray for something and it doesn't happen, or we've been praying for something and it hasn't happened yet, how many of us are praying and it hasn't happened yet? We're there. When we walk through those spaces and when we walk through those times, I find it an opportunity to examine myself. I find it an opportunity to ask myself, okay, what is my response in this? How am I going to respond? And and I check my emotions. I ask myself, okay, did you get mad about that? Did you get frustrated about that? Did it cause you to uh, grow cold in your faith? Did it cause you to question God? Did it cause you to doubt yourself and to create accusation against yourself? Because, you know, we're not supposed to partner with the accuser of the brethren. But how many of us partner with the accuser of the brethren toward ourselves? When something doesn't go the way that we had hoped or when a prayer isn't answered the way that we had wanted it to be so that we immediately think, well, it must have been something I did wrong. I must not have prayed right. I must not have done right. Maybe there was sin in my life that I don't know about. All the accusations towards self can come. So when I go through these times, as I've been praying and asking God for certain things, one of my main things that I pray for, I pray for my children, I pray for my husband, I pray for my church. And when things do not appear in my time, That is where patience is working. I am not yet perfected, but it is a process. I tell people all the time, do not pray and ask God for patience because you will have opportunity to develop them. Don't pray that. So in my, in my, uh, mysteries and the things that I have walked through with God, the times that I have prayed and things didn't come as I had hoped the things I'm praying for still that have not yet come to fullness. It's an opportunity for me to ask. And it's also an opportunity for me to go to the word and to continue to remind myself, here's what God has said. Here's what God has said. Here's what God has said. And there has been one passage of scripture that has been very difficult for me to align with the rest of scripture over the past few months. Until recently, I went to my Bible and I thought, you know what, I'm just, because I knew, I knew what the scripture said. So I just kept thinking on it. God, I don't understand. I don't understand. Show me where this fits. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to it and I'm going to read it myself. I'm just going to read as far as I need to read to get understanding on this, Lord. I want you to show me. So I did. I went to my Bible and I opened up to Daniel chapter 3. So in Daniel chapter three, because I know all of you have been there this week, it's actually back where the pages in your Bible are still stuck together. Daniel is an interesting book. Daniel is written by, uh, Daniel, (laughs) 
no, anyway, what is taking place is that God's people are under slavery. They're under rulership of King Nebuchadnezzar at this time. And they've been under the rulership of this pagan God, a God that does not believe in their God, a God, uh, a king that causes and commands his people to bow down and worship the false gods that he worships. And so in his kingship, in his rulership, he's established certain statues and idols that have been built and they've been placed all over. And he has commanded that people bow down and worship these idols. Well, during his reign, there has been certain people, certain Jews, people of God that have risen to favor with King Nebuchadnezzar. And during this time, what he's done, it's he's taken these people that were made to serve his, his slaves, and he has put them in charge of certain things within his kingdom because they've had favor with him. Daniel was one of them. And there were three others that we're going to read about, and their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three had had huge favor with God, with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he had placed them in a place of influence and authority within his kingdom under his rule. Well, let's pick up here in verse 12, because what's happened is King Nebuchadnezzar has been told that he has set up these idols, right? And everybody at a certain time when the music plays, they're supposed to bow down and worship these idols. Well, these three, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they have refused to bow down and worship these false idols because they are not their God. So this is where we pick up in Daniel chapter three, starting in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So they brought these men to the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery. I don't know about y'all, but that just makes you want to move, doesn't it? In symphony, with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. So he's given him a second chance. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the benefit of the doubt here. I'm going to give you a second chance. If you worship when the music plays, we're fine. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, you have no need or we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God, whom you serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your, guard, your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. This little section, these three words right here, but... If not, there are songs written about it. There's books written about it. There's all kinds of things written about it. But if not, and what is written and what is said is, but if God doesn't save us, this was the place that I was struggling 
these huge declarations of faith, the huge prayers that we're praying, the huge faith that we reach out with, but if not, I could not find the line with that. I could not find the place where that lines up with everything else that God is speaking to us. And these men that have just made this huge declaration, our God will save us. He'll save us from the furnace and he'll save us from you. Now let's just get this straight. This is not just like, hey, we're sitting down across the table having a latte and we're just going to have a friendly conversation about this. Do you guys want to go in the fire? That's not the way this was going down. We're in a tense moment right here. They're saying literally, literally, you guys ever heard this turn or burn? It's put on like super cheesy Christian t-shirts. If you have one, I'm sorry. Not that I just said that. I'm sorry that you have that t-shirt. No. Literally. King Nebuchadnezzar is saying to them, y'all either turn and worship my God or you're going to be a heap of ashes. So this is what I was struggling with is when they turn to him and they say, but if not, certain theologies here, bringing that section of scripture from that standpoint puts God on trial. God is able, but if not, God will save us. But if not, it brings God into question. And when I opened my Bible to read this little section of scripture, what I found was I don't know when I wrote in here, but I underlined, but if not, and I put a little arrow and underneath that I wrote in there, the answer to what I was looking for. I don't even know when I wrote that in there. So here's the thing. Let's look at it. The statement of faith made by these three was that God whom we serve will deliver us from the furnace and from you. But if not, the if not is not referring to God. It is not saying if God doesn't deliver us. Now, some of you in certain translations of the Bible, it will actually say, but if he doesn't, when you go to the original King James version and you go into the Hebrew, there is no he in there. It simply says, but if not straight from the Hebrew, which this is translated from, why do they put he in there? I don't know. That's a mystery. We're just going to have to say that because I don't have the answer to that. But if not, what they say right after that is, we will not serve your gods, nor will we. That right there should be an indicator to us. How do you serve other gods when you're a heap of ashes? Right? So he says, but if not, we will not serve your God. So he's not saying if we're dead, we're not going to serve your gods. That makes no sense, right? So if you look at it 
a little further, when you go back up, what he has said there is he has said to them, if this is the case, what he's asking is if you intend in verse 17, he says, if this is the case, if you intend to assert your authority over us and throw us into the furnace, verse 18, he says, but if not, what he's not questioning, he is not bringing into question God's ability and God's authority. He is bringing into question King Nebuchadnezzar's authority because what he's saying is, but if not, if your authority does not exceed the authority of God, which it does not in my life, what I'm saying is, but if not, Your authority is not bigger than the authority of the God whom I serve. That's the statement that they were making, not bringing God's authority and power into question. They were bringing King Nebuchadnezzar's authority underneath God's authority and saying, if you intend to throw us in the furnace, your authority is not greater than the God whom I serve. That is what I had written In my Bible, I don't know when. The answer that I had been struggling with, because that little section of scripture kept coming up to me, but if not, praying for, I'm just going to be real, praying for my husband to be healed now in this time that we would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And this bull of, well, sometimes healing happens in heaven. You know what? You don't need healing when you're in heaven. So that line does not fly with me. But if not, it's not bringing into question God's ability and authority. It's bringing into question anything else, anyone else who arises in our life to bring us into slavery to any power and authority that is not existing in the kingdom of heaven. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not double-minded. And they did not question God. Because here was what happened. If you go on down into verse 25, God delivers them. They're thrown into the furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar is standing outside the furnace watching them. And he says in verse 25, look, he answered, King Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Now, here's the bottom line. You don't have to agree with me on what I just said about this passage of scripture. I really don't care if you don't agree with me. It's fine if you don't. You don't have to. But the bottom line of what I'm saying to you, here's the most important thing, is that we must come to a place where we settle with God that there will be mysteries in this lifetime that we don't have the answers to. When we walk with God... God is the author. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. We can ask him. We're told to ask him for understanding. But if the understanding doesn't come in the time that we want it, if the answer doesn't come the way that we had hoped it would come, it does not give us permission to develop systems of belief about God that change who God is. The trial 
the challenges, the disappointments, the hurts, the heartbreaks on this end does not change who God is on his end. There are things that happen because of choices we make and there are seasons that we walk through that we had nothing to do with that affect us deeply. Some of you, other people have made choices that have literally altered the course of your life. But that doesn't change who God is on his end. Is there some mystery there for you? Yeah. But if you refuse to put God on trial because of what's happened on this end, the God on this end is always good. And if it's not good yet, he's not done yet. So keep going, keep going. Even if we don't understand right now, we're in the waiting. And even if things don't turn out as we had hoped, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31 says this, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Man, Bailey was preaching my message up here this morning. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Trusting God in the time of mystery actually develops us into the disciple that is better able to handle the breakthrough and the answer when it does come. See, patience is not meant to be a punishment. Patience is only needed in the time of waiting when there's a struggle, right? You don't have to have patience. Well, kind of sometimes you do have to have patience when you're waiting at McDonald's, but man, Chick-fil-A has that system down, right? (laughs) That is God's chicken, right? (laughs) You don't have to have patience when you're waiting for a hamburger, but when you're waiting on beef tenderloin, you got to have some patience. When you're waiting for the good stuff, when you're waiting for the understanding, when you're waiting for the richness of God, patience isn't a punishment. Patience is bringing us through the process of perfecting. That when we get to the place, and what is that place? I don't know. But if there's not an answer yet, it means that God is moving some pieces and he's putting things in the perfect position because God will never bless you with what you're not able to carry. God, like the lottery, how many times do people win the lottery and it ends up destroying them? God's not the lottery. We don't get to buy a scratch off ticket with God and maybe you win, maybe you don't. We have promises And we wait in patience, believing in faith, even in the mystery. Even in the mystery. Faith in the mystery. One of my... (laughs) One of my favorite books in the Bible is Job. 
And for the longest time, I did not want to read Job. For those of you that are new to uh, church and the Bible and stuff, a lot of people have heard of Job. Job, what happened to Job? I just don't know how it, it sucked. That's bad. Job, you start out in Job chapter one and Job, it tells you about how rich he was and how he had all these kids and how he had this many camels. Apparently wealth was measured in camels in the Old Testament. He had a lot of camels. So, you know, it tells you about how good things were for Job and how he was so blessed. His kids all got together at their house, at each one's house on their birthday, and they would celebrate and yada, yada, yada. Well, then, bam, woo, everything changes. And what I would think is if that happened to Job, that could happen to anybody. Fear, that was fear. So, like, I don't want to read Job. That is a sad story. Who wants to watch a sad movie? I don't want to read Job. That's a sad story. Well, actually, it's pretty cool. So in the beginning of Job, what happens is Job, it tells about all of the stuff that Job has and how well he is and he is the most blessed man and God loves him and blah, blah, blah. Well, then one day a servant comes running to him and says, Job, there was lightning and it struck your field and all your sheep are dead. Oh, no. And as he's saying, oh, no, another servant comes running him. Job, something terrible happened over here in the West Pasture. And a big whirlwind came through. And all your camels, they're gone. Oh, no. And while he's saying, oh, no, another servant runs to him and says, Job, your kids were all eating in their house. And they were laughing and having a good time. And all of a sudden, a whirlwind came through and the house collapsed. And they're all dead. Oh, no. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> Well, what happens is you go through Job, there's a whole progression. Job has some really bad friends. The moral of the story with Job is have good friends. <laughs> Job has some really bad friends. That I, the way I picture it is they're all sitting around the campfire and Job is like, he is not having it. He's got sores on his body. Dude is in a bad way. And these friends are sitting around and they're all telling him, well, maybe you did this wrong. And maybe you did this wrong. And maybe you shouldn't have done this. And maybe you shouldn't have done this. So his friends are not good friends. They're not helping him in the situation. But at the very end of Job, there is a friend that comes, the fifth man to come and sit around the campfire and talk about it. His name is Elihu. And Elihu comes and Elihu is the one who brings wisdom to the conversation. He changes the tone of the conversation. And then God comes to speak to Job face to face, it says, in a whirlwind. And this is what it says in Job chapter 40 and verse 1. I love the way the message translation puts it. It says, God then confronted Job directly because Job was saying, maybe it would just be better if I died. That's the position that Job was in. He was not okay with the mystery. Here's where it was at. Job says in chapter 40, verse 1, it says, then God confronted Job directly and says, now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me? the mighty one into court and press charges. And Job answered, I'm speechless in awe and words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. And God continues a conversation with Job and he talks to him about the eagles. He talks to him about the horses. He talks to him about the mountains. He says, were you there when I put the stars in their place in the sky? 
Were you there when I caused the oceans to have their spans? It's a beautifully poetic place in our Bible, if you ever want to go and read that. And it reminds us that God is God. Out of all of the things that we go through and all of the questions that we have and the things that we walk through, the seasons that we experience, the heartbreak, the confusion, the hurt, the loss, all of those things we go through, they're very real. God does not diminish any of them. That's why he says to us, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. But nowhere in the scripture does the Bible tell us that we have to have all the answers. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to us that we should have all the answers. But what it does say to us in Proverbs chapter 3, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. What he says to us is keep asking me the questions, but come to me in a posture of humility, knowing that there will be certain places in your life where you will walk through mystery. And when we settle that with God, it will be peace to our bodies. It will be strength to us and it will be health to us when we do that. So in my classroom, in Mr. Dorsing's classroom in sixth grade, every day we would get so excited to eat our lunch together because in eating our lunch together, we would get to read our book again, our choose your own adventure book. And every day we would start fresh from the beginning And every day we would get to make different choices during our lunch break. And every time we would make different choices, it would lead us on a different path in this book. And today, I want to offer you the opportunity to make a different choice. That if in your season of trial, as you've walked through trial, if you're in the middle of trial, and as you look ahead and if there is trial in front of you, To make the choice to go through that, settling it with God, that it's okay, and that you trust him with the mystery. That you're not going to put God on trial. And I want to invite you right now to simply ask yourself the trials that you have been through and the emotions that you have felt, the trauma that you've been through. And for each person, that's different. One person might look at someone's trauma and say, that's not a big deal. But to that person, it's a very big deal. So we're not here to minimize anything that anyone has been through. But if you look at that, ask yourself, is the emotion of that as real to me today? as it was then? Am I moving through that emotion or am I stuck in it? And if you're stuck in it, ask yourself right now, where am I positioned with God? Have I put him on the witness stand? And am I demanding and obligating God to my questions and my timeline? Or am I asking God 
from the position and the posture of being seated with him in the heavenly places as Christ Jesus has given me opportunity to be. And if I'm seated with him in the heavenly places, seated in the lap of my father, knowing that no matter what the trauma was, no matter what the trial was, that God is faithful in it and through it. So just take a moment and settle that within yourself with God. It's the opportunity that you have to change your story. It's the opportunity that you have that if you've been placing God on trial and you're still feeling like you're in the storm, today you can settle that. It seems like such a simple shift, but it's huge. It's huge. And to surrender to God that sometimes we walk in mystery. If you would, just go ahead and close your eyes and just settle in that moment. And you might ask yourself, how come we have to close our eyes? I say that because for me, I get easily distracted. So if you don't, you don't have to close your eyes. But I want to just invite you right now to just take that moment and just settle it with him. Those places in your life that you haven't understood. The places that you can't find an answer for. The answer to those things is not what's going to make you closer to God. It's faith. And it's your walk with him. It's believing in him. So I invite you right now, if anybody has not taken the opportunity to really settle, first of all, within yourself, that you trust God with your heart and that you give him your heart. That's the very first settling that we come to in our journey. It's taking the opportunity to say, Jesus, I don't know how to do this life right. I don't know how to make it through everything. And what I've been doing so far has got me to this point. But today, I want to make a commitment to give you my heart and trust you with my heart and walk with you. I turn from the way that I was doing things and I turn toward you. And in doing that, I ask you to forgive me of the places that I've made choices that weren't your best, that I've made choices who, that have affected my life and the lives of other people in a negative fashion. I ask you to forgive me of those things. And I release the guilt and the shame to you of those choices. And I ask you to take the weight of those choices. And the beautiful thing about God is what he does is when we give him our heart and we repent of those things that have not been God's best for us, he really does take away all the weight of regret and shame, condemnation that we place and the accusations that we bring against ourselves. So if you're doing that right now, just take a deep breath and release all of that weight to God. And he takes it for you. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He took all of that for you. And then with your arms open, you just turn to him and say, God, I give you my heart. And I trust you 
with all the scars. I trust you with the hurt. I trust you with the broken places. I trust you with the places that I don't understand and the places that I still don't have answers to. But instead of trying to walk it alone, God, I trust you to walk with me in the mystery because I know that you're good and I know that you love me and I know that you take all things and turn them to the good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose and you are his called. So Father, we thank you. And in that, we settle today that we don't have to have all the answers, that we don't have to know everything that you are the God who does. And when we come into partnership with you, we're okay with saying, God, I know there will be places of mystery in my life, but I trust you that you are good through them. I know that you are able to deliver me and I know that you are able to save me and I trust you in the mystery as I walk that out. Father, I ask you for any place of confusion, any place of doubt, any place that has come to any of us to cause us to waver in any way, any place that we've grown cold. Father, I pray this morning that you would light that fire on the inside of us again. Light it up with your love and with your goodness and your kindness and your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.